Oh my God, we're live. Do your favorite TikTok pose. Woo! Sorry. Anyways, wrong, wrong, wrong session. Here we go. Ah, we're in the green room. This is Disrupt TV episode 202. We can't believe we hit 202 and we've got some special guests. I'm going to go in reverse order how they're going to be introduced and then we're going to jump into the real event. So let's start with Liz. What are you, where are you calling from and what are you talking about today? Calling from Constellation South Bay Industrial Center known as my house in San Jose, California. Excellent. Very cool. What are you talking about today? Oh, we're gonna talk a little bit about Black Hat 2020. What happened there? We're gonna talk about a little bit about brands. And then, you know, who knows anything else that might happen to come up, like how Vol is designing the background in his screen today. It's gonna be awesome. Excellent. Very, very cool. Paul, honored to have you here. What's going on? And uh, where are you calling in from? Uh, I'm on the Upper West Side of uh, Manhattan. And uh, I'll be talking about uh, COVID and the impact uh, on the economy. I'm an economist. That's what I do for a living. Dude, you're more than an economist. You're one of the world's <laughs> top economists. <laughs> so it's amazing. Alex, where are you calling in from? Hopefully a little bit cooler than where we are. No heat wave, I, I hope. I am calling in from downtown Morge, known to the entire world. It's based in Switzerland. So I'm calling in from Switzerland, from the Swiss Alps. <laughs> All right, he's much cooler. Awesome. All right, well, I'm Ray Wong with Constellation Research. I got my awesome co-host, Vala Ashar, and of course, El, our amazing producer. So uh, I guess we're going to start now. I'm going to jump in. So let's see what happens. You guys all ready? All right, let's do this. Three, all right. two, one. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining us on Disrupt TV. My name is Vala Afshar. I'm the Chief Digital Evangelist at Salesforce and your co-host for the next hour. We welcome you to follow us on Twitter at Disrupt TV Show. Send Ray, myself, and our distinguished guests your questions using hashtag Disrupt TV, and we will do our best to answer them live. It's my uh, pleasure to introduce my co-host. He's the CEO and founder of Constellation Research. He's the best-selling author of Disrupting Digital Business. He's a regular contributor to Harvard Business Review, ZDNet. By the way, he just finished his new book, uh, Breaking News. Uh, he's uh, often on Yahoo Finance, Fox Business. You see him everywhere. In my humble opinion, he's one of the top futures to follow on Twitter at RWANG0. Welcome, Ray Wong, to Disrupt TV. Believe it or not, episode 202. <laughs> I know. We hit 202. This is amazing. So I'm here with my awesome co-host, Vala Afshar. And more importantly, he is one of the top people to follow. If you're on Twitter, follow him. CEO, CIO, CMO, CFOs all around the world, follow him, of course. And if you're watching business TV, you'll see him. And, of course, he's a author. He's, built, he's one of the top bloggers on ZDNet now for tech, leadership, and, of course, inspiration. But who cares about us? Our guests are like 10 times more interesting. So who do we have to kick this off? I think it's more than one order of magnitude, right? I think maybe two, <laughs> three orders of magnitude. Our first guest is Dr. Alex Osterwalder. And I'm going to call him Alex because I consider Alex a friend and a mentor. <laughs> He's one of the world's most influential innovation experts, a leading author. I mean, uh, my highest recommendation for books for 2020, and I've tweeted about this number of times, even before the show. Uh, he's an entrepreneur in demand speaker whose work has changed the way established companies do business and how venture gets started. Uh, rank number four of the top 50 management thinkers by Thinkers 50 worldwide, Alex is known for simplifying the strategy development process and turning complex concepts into digestible visual models. Uh, one of the best visual thinkers in the world. Alex is the co-inventor of the business model canvas, value proposition canvas, business, business portfolio map. These are all practical tools that are trusted by millions, millions of business practitioners from leading global companies. Strategizer, Alex's company, 
provides online courses, applications, technology-enabled services to help organizations effectively and systematically manage strategy, growth, and transformation. His books, and I'm just holding one because I don't have enough hands to hold all of his books, <laughs> include international best-selling business model generation, value proposition design, testing business ideas, and the recently launched Invincible Company. And thank you, Salesforce is actually in, uh, in, in referenced in the book. Uh, one of the top follows, must follow, highest recommendation on Twitter at Alex Osterwalder. Welcome back, Alex, to uh, Disrupt TV. It's a real pleasure to be here. And first, I want to say congratulations to the both of you for the awesome work you're doing. And that goes across from writing, you know, being social media figures and really um, helping inspire that book and the other books that we've written so far. So those ideas come from somewhere. So everything we do at Strategizer, everything I do, builds on the shoulders of giants. So first of all, thank you to you guys as well. Wow, no, what no, kind no, of words. When the number, number four thinker in the world gives you, record this. We're going to be playing just that 10 second segment. I think this is live. I think this is live. We're going to keep looping that uh, somewhere in the, in the, in the hit reel. Where are my parents <laughs> when I do this show? Go ahead. Sorry. Oh, my God. You, know, you were talking about this book. I mean, I think we were in Boston and we were having dinner outside on the water when we last met uh, together. Yeah, it was pretty amazing. I was, I was pretty excited about that. Uh, but, you know, but we're in the middle of a pandemic. That's kind of crazy. Like, how do you how do you become the invincible company? It sounds a little bit, I don't know, maybe arrogant, pretentious that you could do that. So tell us more about this. How do you become the invincible company? What are the secrets behind it? Uh, beautiful book. It is honestly a beautiful book. Go ahead. Absolutely. So, you know, the, the title actually has a, an interesting backstory. So we were wondering what, what should we use as a title, the world's best business models or... And we just thought, let's go for something provocative, right? The invincible company, something that you can't actually achieve, except if you're a monopoly in a government, right? You, you can't become invincible. But what you can do, and there are few companies that do that really well today, is you can constantly reinvent yourself. And that doesn't just happen because you have smarter people. It's because you put growth and transformation at the center of your organization. You institutionalize it, right? So what we call invincible companies are companies that do three things well. Number one, they constantly reinvent themselves. So they do what they do well, and they continue to do that. They cut costs, they become more efficient. But at the same time, they're humble enough to know that success is the beginning of failure. If you don't constantly reinvent yourself, you are actually probably going to become irrelevant. These days, you know, business models expire like yogurts in a fridge. Second piece is that these companies... <laughs> <laughs> Love that line. The, these companies I've got tons of Chobani in the yogurt. <laughs> they, they, they don't just compete on products and services. This is a big one, right? Because we always think technology, product, service when we say innovation. But what you'll see is that the best companies out there today, they compete on superior business models. So yes, they have great products and services. You can't survive anymore without great products and services. But unfortunately, it's, it's not enough to stay ahead. It's harder to get a competitive advantage based on great products and services. So you need to design a superior business model. And the last one, this is the hardest, the really great companies, they transcend industry boundaries. You can't say, oh, they do hardware, they do software, they do this or that. You know, think Apple. Is Apple, you know, do they make phones? Yeah, they do. Is it a phone company? No, they do software, they do entertainment, you know, they do manufacturing. So the really great companies, you can't classify them in an industry anymore. 
And taking a disruptive example, let's take Tesla. Why is there this crazy imagination premium to use Rita McGrath's word, words on, on Tesla? And then we can discuss are they overvalued or not. But what they have playing for them is this is not a car company, right? People see a car company, but it's not. It's a data company, it's a software company, and increasingly what they're going to move towards is becoming an integrated solar company with, you know, rooftop panels and batteries. That is not something you can classify anymore. And very few companies think like that. Today, many at the fringe, like the outliers, right, at the, the borders, you know, the, uh, but few established companies are good at this. And those outliers are the ones we need to look at and we need to study in order to replicate that across the board. I think, you know, you know, invincible, uh, uh, companies can be a force for good, right? To quote Mark Benioff, companies can be a force for good, but we need to help them a little bit to get across, you know, beyond the 19th century kind of organizational structures that they often still have. Absolutely. We had uh, ARK Invest, uh, a firm that only looks at investment opportunities for disruptive companies. and. They targeted Tesla stock by 2024 to be uh, the average target was 7,000. The bull, 15,000, and uh, and uh, and the conservative was 1,500. Which again, they've passed already. So well ahead of schedule to that 7,000 mark that Ark Invest. In your book, you know you have uh, sections uh, that speak to speak to tools, manage, invest platform library, improve platform library, and culture. So, and, and you, number of companies, hyper growth companies, the most successful uh, growth uh, companies are referenced in your book, and you give very unique insights in terms of why they're successful, how they're thinking differently. But it is segmented into these chapters. And my question to you is you know, in 2020, uh, uh, you know, for the first time, we've had this seismic event. Uh, for the first time, the world has been united to solve one problem. I don't remember any time in history of mankind where the world's united. So the disruptive nature of this pandemic is unlike anything we've ever experienced. Uh, you know, which one of these five sections, uh, is it the tools that manage, uh, which one of these do you think um, is most impacted given the pandemic, given the fact that we've moved from a centralized construct to really perhaps the biggest blind spot in business, and that's not understanding the value of decentralization. Yeah. Uh, and what we've gone through in the last five months is this distributed digital forcing function yeah. that's are killing companies that and they, they will never return again, some in my opinion, and others that are just growing because they were designed for decentralization and yeah. movement. Yeah. Let me, if I may, I, I'll draw something. Let's see if we can make this. Oh. Ah, can you see my screen? Is that, did that just come up? I pressed the share button, but I see. Not much is happening. Let's see. Let's take a look. Oh. I think we can. Let's pop that in. This yeah, is the first. Yeah, look, I'm going to draw. I'm going to draw. <laughs> so, and then I'll get back to the book. So it's, this is something I draw with leaders all the time just to get them started on the topic. So if you allow me to make a little detour before I come back to your, to your question, Please. Bala, Please. So I like to, to split companies into two worlds. One is what I call exploit. Okay. And the other one is explore. And, you know, a lot of people have been talking about the ambidextrous company for a long time, but I don't think, you know, many companies have really done that. Exploit is about managing the existing. So I like to draw a little business small canvas here. This is your, the business or the businesses that you have. And most companies focus on managing this. And they do 
one type of innovation which is efficiency innovation, right? So they improve their existing business models and they get better and better at it. But here's the thing. When the world is disrupted, you are actually just more efficiently dying with efficiency innovation, right? So, so You're doing it faster. Do. You're doing it better. It's cheaper. <laughs> you die faster. <laughs> Done, right? So the, the companies that are actually thriving during this pandemic, and of course, it also it depends a little bit on the industry, but they created a whole ecosystem to explore. This is the world of ideas, and not just ideas, because ideas are free. They're everywhere. This is the world of turning ideas into real value propositions and real business models. This is not about management. This is about exploration. It's about, it's about entrepreneurship and very iterative processes. Mm -hmm. And the culture here and the culture here is very different, right? Now, it's not that yes. one is more important or right and the other one is wrong. You need both. So what great companies have done is they created a plus here. They do both. And what yes. they also do is they don't separate the explorers out too much. They are separate because otherwise they're going to get killed by the existing business model. Sure. But they're close enough to draw on the brand, to draw on the customers, to draw on even the lawyers, right? Because there's one <laughs> thing, to quote Steve Blank, <laughs> the inventor of the whole lean startup movement, there's one thing that established companies have that startups don't have customers, right? So you actually want to start with some of those things. You want to give access to customers. You want to experiment. So I believe the moment established companies figured out how to do both, they will become real engines of value creation beyond, you know, just making version two, three, and four of, of an, a really good phone. So that's what's really exciting. And that's what we try to ex explain in the book. And I do think, you know, that the big thing to take away here is why is this not happening? It seems kind of trivial what I just drew. It's very simple. <laughs> this part here, this part here in most companies has zero power. The people ah. who are charged with reinvention, they report to the person who reports to the person who reports to the person who reports to the CTO, who reports to the CEO, who reports to the board. So guess what's going to happen? Nothing. Right? So... There's a lot of innovation activities. Every company has an accelerator and so on. But this is innovation theater. Again, to use some of the words that Steve Blank, Rita McGrath, and I use innovation theater, it's for the show. It's not the real thing. And then there are yep. few companies that break through. Right? That's the difference between those who do it and those who talk about it. I love that. I love that. So love when, when, you're, when you're in an accelerated, disruptive environment, better sameness is not going to be enough. So again, you can keep being better and better and better, but uh, if you're going down the wrong path uh, or a path where you're not showing relevance and value to your stakeholders, you're going to become irrelevant and unfortunately not around. Ray, sorry, go ahead. I was just trying to... No, no, no. We got some great comments here. I mean, someone loves us. Let's so <laughs> You know, exploit versus explore, creative disruption, articulate. Yeah. I think that recovers it. But hey, th this is this is what we've been talking about for years, right? The teams that are so good at you know six sigma, at operational efficiency, that really know what they're doing. They can take out costs, right? They can get 15, 20% incremental improvement. They can run the ship. 
is totally different culture than the folks that are thinking outside of the box. There you go, thinking outside of the box, doing something very different, right? And, and I think you're articulating that. And the problem is we don't value them at the same time. Yep. And, yep. And, and that creates a huge issue. And, and so this comes back to the question is like, who really values innovation inside yep. a company? Like, does it matter, right? And, and what is it that causes people to realize that I have to put these two pieces together? Let me give you one example of an organization that, you know, we always have the usual suspects like Amazon, and they do innovation really well, right? Uh, Salesforce would go in that category as well. Microsoft now is moving back into that category. But let's take one that is not so well known, which is Ping An. And the reason I like that company, uh, it's always a bit dangerous to talk about Chinese companies these days. <laughs> with a lot of, that, you know, that's the insurance company, right? So people know? It's the insurance company, right? Yeah. yeah. So here's what's interesting. 10 years ago, this was a normal insurance and banking conglomerate, okay? They just did insurance and banking, the kind of old style way. But the founder, Peter Ma, he said, we're gonna get killed by technology companies if we don't transform. And here's what he did. He didn't just invest the money because money is one aspect that you need. He gave innovation power. So he hired a lady called Jessica Tan, and here's where it's important and made her the co-CEO, okay? Wow. That means innovation was at the very top, not below the CEO, not reporting to a CTO or so, but a co-CEO. And that is what made it work. And if we think back to transcending industry boundaries, here's another thing they, they did. They said, we're not gonna classify ourselves as banking or insurance. We're gonna play in five arenas, okay? And they would invest in those five arenas and they would start to in, create really great new stuff. So today, the biggest health platform on the planet was created by Pingan. It's called Pingan Good Doctor. Wow. 300 million users. Think of it. Not an insurance, not, not a traditional Swiss, you know, bank or traditional Swiss insurance company that did it. It was a player that realized we need to forget insurance and banking. We need to invest in future business models. So will they still do banking and insurance? Of course, it's sure. still one of their pillars. Of but, but this is what's interesting, right? They gave innovation power. So what I think is the challenge is not, creative people is not the problem. Ideas is not the problem. All those mm -hmm. things exist in every single company I've seen. What's the problem is that we didn't institutionalize innovation in a way that it can really thrive. We have the people in most companies, say 99%, we have the ideas, what we don't have is a system where innovators can thrive. And that goes back to explore, you know, exploit. That's kind of obvious, but it's actually common sense, but it's not so obvious how to put that in place. And, and it's a big jump for leaders. So I really don't want to say it's easy for leaders to do this. It's very hard because they are risking their career by doing this, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I, love right. The I love the takeaway of you have to give, or you, can, you must consider giving in innovation power and influence I think government uh, can can benefit from you know leveraging the influence of power innovation. My recommend my prediction: if the Democratic Party wins the election in the U.S., we will have the first Secretary of Innovation, and it'll be Andrew Yang. But that's my prediction because I do think there are certain industries that lag in innovation, and government is one of them. What is next for innovation? My final question for you, Alex: what's what's the big pick? Take us take us on a journey where we're having Disrupt TV episode two thousand. And it's 2030, and we're talking about innovation. But, but remember, it's not us. It's our ch our chatbots. Oh yeah, yeah. Virtual it's assistants my, like coming in doing stuff avatar. for us. Our AI <laughs> avatars, perfectly. Yeah. So. And we're hanging out at the beach or in the Swiss Alps, right? That's right. That's right. <laughs> 
I, I think the greatest companies, they actually create value in four ways, right? Number one, they create value for customers. Number two, they create value for their businesses. And that's just kind of just to stay alive. But here's where it gets interesting. They create value also for their staff, for their teams, and they create value for society. But for that to really happen, to deliver value on those, in the, those four areas, organizations have to substantially change their organizational structures. Mm. There's going to be a huge wave of management innovation. So I think we're going through a, a, a wave of business model innovation, which is replacing technology, process innovation, all of that. But it's not enough. We really need management innovation to create companies that create value at those four levels for customers, for the organization, for the team, and for society. And without management innovation, not going to happen. So that's the next big wave. So we actually get there. Gary Hamill just brought out a book talking about these things, right? So we're seeing that this is now slowly starting to disrupt organizations. The really leading ones are thinking of how do we actually come up with new organizational forms that are extremely agile. So we're falling back into this kind of buzzwordy thing, agile. But organizational agility in the strategic sense is not a reality yet, but it will be when you are actually running your show with the chatbots. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we have to, well, to keep control of them. They might say things we might not like. The avatars. But look, you know, you're, you're talking about something really powerful here. You're really talking really about, powerful. you know, one, you're activating movements, right? You're aligning organizations to activate different Global. movements, streams of movements that are popping yeah. up at the same time that are balancing out portfolios. Same in the way that people used to look at product lines, you're not looking at value streams, right? And how people think about the business models and the monetization. And yeah. people are still trying to figure out what industry they're in. And that's the wrong question. Right? Like, yeah. why, why are you even bothering with it? Right? Pingong is actually interesting. I mean, they put 1% or 10% of their uh, profits, 10% of their revenues, 1% of their profits into yeah. innovation, which is yeah. huge. Right? Yeah. And so, I mean, there, there are companies like this popping up everywhere, turning into digital giants all over the place. And, mm -hmm. and this is going to be interesting to watch. So, okay. Well, this is awesome. I wish we had 40 more minutes <laughs> we don't so we are here with alex osterwalder ceo co-founder of strategizer but more importantly one of the top thinkers in the world he's got the invincible company get the book check out his twitter handle a-l-e-x-o-s-t-e-r-w-a-l-d-e-r -E -E and don't be too jealous he's hanging out in the alps so anyway <laughs> thanks a lot for being on the show hope to thank see you in the green room all. afterwards really thank great you to you. thank you alex Real pleasure to be here again. Thanks. Thank you so much. His book is like a coffee table quality book. I mean, the pictures, the illustrations, and there's so many use cases. Frankly, this is a graduate level book. I mean, this should be, the book should be taught in universities. Uh, and I'm, it probably is, you know, because it is, he sold millions of copies of his book. So it doesn't, it wouldn't surprise me if the book is uh, actually being used to uh, at universities. And and the concept starting brand new companies, right? I mean, I can see yeah, all these people yeah. doing that. So yeah, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. Okay, uh, we're going to uh, really expand your mind with our next guest. Uh, Paul uh, Sherrod uh, is a research fellow at the uh, Mosavar Ramani Center for Business and Government at Harvard Kennedy School. Previously, Paul was vice chairman of S&P Global after serving as executive vice president and chief economist. He's not just an economist, he's one of the top economists in the world. Paul held a chief economist positions at Standard Poor's Rating Services, Numar Securities, Lehman Brothers, and was head of Japan Equity Investments 
at uh, Bering Asset Management. Paul was on the faculty of the Australian National University, ANU, and of Osaka University, and was a visiting assistant professor at Stanford University and foreign visiting scholar at the Bank of Japan. In fact, Paul is a member of the World Economic Forum's Global Future Council on the New Economic Agenda and was member of the World Economic Forum Global Agenda Council on International Monetary System. He was appointed twice by Prime Minister Hishimoto and Prime Minister Ochi to serve on committees of Japan, uh, Japanese government's Economic Deliberation Council. Uh, Paul is author and editor of several books and numerous academic art articles. Welcome, Paul, to Disrupt TV. Thank you very much, Valor. It's a pleasure to be here. Good to see you again, Ray. <laughs> it is great to see you. I mean, this is amazing. I mean, if we had this conversation six months ago, we'd be talking about other things. And given your experience from Lehman all the way to Nomura to all these other places, including the SMP, uh, this is one of the most interesting times. And we've got MMT going on. We've got interest rates in some kind of bizarre free fall. We've got gold all over the place. And the stock market's like, hey, nothing's going on. This is amazing. <laughs> so so where are we really here in this you know, COVID-19 post-pandemic outlook? Are things really as bad as they seem? Do they really look good? Is there an ending to this? Like, what's your view? Yeah. Well, Ray, I mean, you packed a lot into that question. I mean, uh, so yes or no. <laughs> yeah. you know, if you, uh, one, one point you just touched on there is the disconnect between what's going on in the real economy, which is what economists like myself typically look at first, and how the financial markets are doing, particularly in the IT sector. But maybe we'll get to that. But if we just start with the, the real economy, the, the analogy that I use at the moment is, um, imagine there was a Rip Van Winkle economist who went to sleep, you know, the end of uh, last year, say December, even January, and woke up even in April, but even if they woke up now, they would be, comp and they looked around at the economy, they turned on their, their Bloomberg or whatever, give them a plug, um, and looked at the data and they said, Somebody must have, you know, there's a, a fat thumb error here. The data cannot be like this. Um, in other words, the, the deterioration in the sort of hard economic data that market economists sort of feed off um, is unprecedented. Let me just give you one number to, I won't drown you in numbers, but this is, I think, pretty. No, no, please, please. Because no, no, I think it's no, really no. important we love to set numbers. the facts. We love numbers. The, the unemployment rate, probably the most sort of overall <clears throat> important statistic because it's people's livelihoods are at stake, okay. in February was 3.5 percent 3.5 percent two months ever. later in a pretty much lowest you know living memory two months later by uh april it was 14.7 percent 14.7 percent that's what 11.2 percentage point increase just in two months now how bad is that well, if you go back to the the, the global financial crisis um, I was chief economist at Lehman Brothers at the time. I had a kind of a front row. Some, some company we heard about during the financial <laughs> yeah. crisis. Yeah, <laughs> disclosure, full disclosure here. Um, unemployment in August 2008. Yeah, the economy was already getting a bit wobbly, but just look at it just before the financial system had that massive cardiac arrest in September 2008 was 6.1%. Oh. The peak that it went up to at the peak of the Great Recession was 10%. Wow. 3.9 percentage point increase versus 11.2. So this time that increase in unemployment was much, much worse. But here's my punchline. In the Great Recession, it took 14 months for the unemployment rate to get up to 10%. Much worse happened here, and it only took two months. So, yeah, the deterioration in the real economy is, is real. We've just seen nothing like this before. But, of course, there are other odd things. The other very odd thing about this uh, recession 
for an economist is normally some, you know, economists love to talk about exogenous shocks. And, you know, the coronavirus, COVID-19 is a real exogenous shock. But usually something hits the economy and that causes demand to fall. That causes unemployment to go up. And then the policymakers, the central banks, government, fiscal authorities, they start the engines revved up and they try to get that demand back again. But what is unique here is that massive decline in economic activity has been driven largely by the policy authorities, not central banks, but the governments themselves, in order to deal with the pandemic. So it's kind of turned the normal logic of recessions and how you deal with them uh, on its head. Those numbers are just unbelievable. You know, the numbers are large enough where all of us know either family or friends, colleagues that have lost their jobs. It's just, I don't know anyone that doesn't know someone that has been impacted in their first degree connection. So it's just that the numbers are-, are I'm just using the, I just quoted the unemployment rate. You know, for economists look at other measures, there's another measure of underemployment, unemployment and underemployment. And that's much worse. Um, you know, that's that's up there kind of like 17%, something like that. Um, for the people, you know, who don't have the luxury of working online, taking an extended kind of, uh, you know, work workation or whatever it is at home, um, this is a really, you know, we like to be kind of upbeat on a Friday afternoon here, but a lot of people, they're really, really hurting in this. Uh, it's 37. 37% of the population can't work online. I mean, in terms of the yeah, employment I mean, population. It's four out of 10. Yeah, I mean, it's unbelievable and unbelievable. So, so, so Paul, okay, so we get to a point where we are able to, let's just focus on US. We're, we're, we're able to do millions of tests a day. Uh, we've, we've done a good job of not just identifying, isolating, but we have automated uh, and maybe advanced manual contact tracing. Uh, and we have a vaccine uh, that's been tested and it's better than 50%, it's 70, 75% success. So I'm gonna take you to maybe 2022. <laughs> and uh, what's the impact of the coronavirus in our economy a couple of years down the road? Um, uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, great, uh, great question, question Valor. Economists love to talk about the alphabet soup of a, a V-shaped recovery, a W-shaped recovery, a U-shaped, L-shaped, all these different things. Um, so you know, who, who knows? But I think the first point to make is that the answer to that question, and you really gave me the great premise, which is we've got through COVID. So let's assume we get through COVID. The problem mm -hmm. is if, if you know, the virus does something or it goes away quickly, that that gives you one economic recovery path. If it hangs around, mutates, get into the third or fourth round, we go somewhere differently. But I think you know, in a nutshell, if we're looking at yes, it's all under control. We're looking at twenty twenty two. I would say two things. One is the economies will have recovered to a significant extent. And the reason for that is... Sorry, is that is that is that uh, 3 to 4% unemployment? Or what does uh, recovery mean? Do we go back to 2019 numbers or...? You, you, you know, it could, it, you could, but typically the unemployment, just the nature of the economy is such that the unemployment rate will come down slower than it goes up. It, it just, that's the nature of the beast. But, but, you know, the unemployment rate could be back to, you know, 4%, something like that. And the economy could be growing, say, the US, 2 2.5%, you know, 3%. That's possible. Um, however, you know, the, the second thing to point, to point out is that typically, Economists are fond of pointing out that you, know, you never get back to the path that you were on, that you would have been on if this had never happened. So there is typically some sort of permanent scarring or damage to the economy. Economists have a fancy word for this, you know, hysteresis. What it basically means is that the, the path that you've been through 
you know, hangs around and, 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 and affects you in the future. But the two things that you worry about in particular are the damage that's done to the capital stock and the damage that's done to the human capital stock. Mm -hmm. So what typically happens in a recession, and one of the reasons that, you know, economists like myself are, are, are always very keen on, on really saying to the policy authorities, central banks, fiscal authorities, whatever ammunition, roll it out and fire it as, as much as you can to get the economy back to full employment, where everybody can get a job if they want a job, is the longer the recessions go on, the longer people are out of the workforce, they've lost their attachment, their skills are deteriorating. You know, they might be able to retool and reskill, but they're out of the action. And secondly, the longer the recession goes on, the, the longer the period of underinvestment, uh, and that will then lead to a permanently lower capital stock uh, further, further in the future. But I think, so th that's sort of, I think consensus kind of would be around my comments there. I think what's more important, and this may be <clears throat> extension of your question is, even if the economy gets back to full employment, that's the term that economists use. That's what the central banks and the fiscal authorities are focused on. Um, yeah, don't have inflation, don't have inflation. Everybody who wants a job can work. It's, that's, that's the bar. Um, but I think the interesting questions all revolve around, this is, a, you know, apropos of your TV program, a hugely disruptive event. And how is it going to change the nature of the economy? the internal workings of the economy. And, you know, one can only speculate about that. But my sense is that a lot of the trends that were in place before COVID-19 hit are going to be accentuated, accelerated, and amplified. And I think we're seeing that already. Some of those trends are good. Some of them are not so good. And probably there'll be some new trends emerge that even with our crystal balls, we can't see. But 10 years in the future, something happens. So you know what? Trace the genesis of that. It goes back to that 2020 coronavirus shock. No, it's a great point there. And, and you know, related to that, you know, it's something that you've been talking about, too. I've been reading your newsletters and the thing, speeches that you've been giving, and it, they're amazing. Uh, it's this expansionary monetary policy that's going mm. on, right? I mean, people are pushing the limits. That's why people are flocking to gold. Bond yields are going down, right? I mean, it's it's crazy. Um, are we going to get back? Are we going to look like a complete lost decade like Japan looked like from the 90s to 2000s? <laughs> or will this QE that's going on in terms of expansionary monetary policy change us uh, in a different way where we just go straight to MMT and say, screw it. We, we, what gold? What reserve? What, 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 what are we trying to back this thing against? Right? Um, so. Well, I, I think I, well, you know, I'm not I'm not an MMTer per se, but I, I think I kind of sympathize with a lot of the, the, the ideas in MMT, and I kind of came to them independently because of my background in Japan. You know, Bavanga Japan invented quantitative easing back in 2001. As an economist sitting in Tokyo at the time, I had to sort of figure out what the heck's going on. So I think there's actually a lot of the insights from what people well, – what people call MMT are, are actually pretty, uh, pretty, uh, pretty spot on. Um, I, I think the problem is there's been a bit of a battle, pitchfork battle between the mainstream economists and the MMTers. And my advice is get over it, put the pitchforks down, try to figure out what we can agree on here. But I think one of the things coming into the crisis, and I was pushing this in my own research and, and writings, is that the the macroeconomic policy framework. Sorry to use the jargon, but you know the monetary and fiscal architecture that governments governments have and developed over you know a fifty year period, particularly the last twenty or thirty year periods, looking distinctly anachronistic and sort of not quite fit for purpose. And in a nutshell, the reason for that is that that framework, you know, independent central bank rely on in the U.S. the Fed to manage the economy, was really a product of the kind of social learning 
that happened in the 20th century that said governments can create unlimited amounts of money running big budget deficits and running the printing presses, that's going to lead to inflation. That's what history shows. We have to put shackles. We have to put handcuffs on that process. So they created, they made the central banks independent and said, look, you technocrats, you manage this process and we'll sort of put fiscal handcuffs on the congresses, the parliaments uh, and the governments. Now, that's a great way of solving a problem when you have inflationary pressure in the system. But if we're looking at a situation where we have huge unemployment, we have deflationary forces, and many of those may be coming out of Silicon Valley, even when we're in a normal situation. Oh, um, yeah, definitely. Maybe you want to actually put Humpty Dumpty back, back together again. You want your fiscal and monetary authorities working closely together and actually printing a lot of money, to use that somewhat journalistic popular term. Um, so I think we're in that world at the moment, to cut a long story short, that when you've got one third of the workforce, you know, being hit like this, um, and deflationary force, forces potentially being unleashed, um, roll out that monetary and fiscal uh, machinery. But budget, governments running big budgets, deficits, and central banks doing a lot of QE. And that's pretty much what they've done. There's a, there is a misunderstanding here, though, Ray, if I just quickly come in on QE, Quantitative easing, this massive expansion of central bank balance sheets, is much misunderstood because most of that really is just the central bank, which is part of the government, changing the debt profile of the government. Yes. What I mean by that is what they're doing is taking, take the U.S., taking treasuries out of people's hands and putting what's called central bank reserves or central bank money, monetary base in their hands. They're slightly different animals. But if you look at one of these charts of massive expansion of central bank balance sheets, it looks like horrendous. But that's really, you know, printing a lot of money, pumping a lot of liquidity into the system, but they're simultaneously sucking a lot of treasuries and government debt securities out of the system. So it's not quite as scary as it looks. But, but can I ask you a, a real question? A question related to that is, is the yeah. fact that if we're if we're printing this much money, can you only get away with MMT if you're a reserve currency? Because if you're not, then it looks like paper money, right? Well, I think the the MMT essentially what their insight is is to say, look, governments create money, therefore they can't run out of it, and that is true if um, the rest. You know, society, let's just call it society, your, your society and the rest of the world, accept that money that you print or create as currency. If nobody wants to hold it, then um, you can print as much as you like. It's not going to do you much good. So, yeah, being <laughs> having that uh, credibility. And this is why policymakers and economists, you know, uh, academic and policy economists are so keen on the idea of central banks and governments having credibility, that is, the, the, the market participants or the public have confidence in what they do, institutions, but also their currency. So, yeah, it definitely helps to apply these ideas if you're a US, a Japan, uh, an Australia, a Canada, uh, whatnot. Now, interesting. the interesting one here is what if you're a member of the EU, particularly the, European, the Euro area? That's a little bit different because they've created this thing called the Eurozone or the Euro area, the ECB, which can create unlimited amounts of euros. But if you're in Italy or a Spain or a Portugal, you're reliant on Frankfurt 
or maybe some people would say Berlin, um, and maybe Paris, you know, to, to make sure that that, uh, that monetary blood uh, is actually uh, flowing. And, well, it's maybe not the best analogy there. <laughs> <laughs> well, <It is. laughs> uh, my, my, my final question, Paul. Uh, in fact, I think the last ec- uh, World Economic Forum ranking of the largest economies at the end of this decade, 2030, I believe it was China, India, U.S., Japan, Indonesia, and so on and so forth. But it was China, India, U.S., and uh, top three. And uh, your thoughts in terms of this uh, coronavirus episode, is it going to set back the uh, the Chinese economy, uh, or will it propel China further ahead and they will have the largest uh, economy ahead of 2030? Mm. You know, if you had to render, if you well, if you had to render that judgment right now in terms of how things are going, you know, the, the huge irony that's come out of COVID nineteen is China's looking pretty good. Um, yeah. The virus originated in Wuhan, uh, China, but um, you know, the, the the toll in China. And it's a long story of why this. You know, can you believe the numbers? It's a long story of, of, of what happened there, which I'm not really fully familiar with. But if you just look at the numbers, deaths in China four thousand seven hundred. Um, Per capita deaths in the U.S., if you look at our, you know, our rate here, we're up to about 160-something thousand, but it's on a per capita basis, about 140 times that of China. So China has actually been, this is just a remarkable statistic. Now, most people say you can't believe the numbers, and I don't fully believe them, but if you look at other countries, neighboring countries, South Korea, Japan, Philippines, no. You know, it's in the same zip code in terms of per capita death rate. China's maybe at the lower end, but some places, Southeast Asia, even lower than China. So it does look like the coronavirus was not as bad um, a shock to the Chinese economy. And lo and behold, we look at the GDP numbers already in second quarter, they're picking up. So already coming into this valor, uh, you mentioned China, it could be the biggest economy in the world. The way that economists measure things, compare countries, actually, already in 2014, China surpassed, I'm talking about PPP, purchasing power parity, yes, yes. surpassed the US in 2014. But China's, but you know, on a market like nominal exchange rate basis, it's about, you know, 25% the US, 16% China. So even on that metric, which is not quite purist, but is very simple, um, China's catching up fast. Growth rate is about three times that of the U.S. So give it another 10, 15 years. You know, as long as China keeps growing, it'll it'll keep happening. But where maybe the other side of the ledger, and I think the interesting geopolitical issues are, um, you know, China is perhaps coming out of this partly because it is doing so well. It seems to have been let off the hook, the COVID hook. Mm-hmm. It, it's obviously going to be operating in a much tougher geopolitical environment, I think, no matter who wins the November election, you know, there's been this sort of collective waking waking up in the US that, hey, China maybe doesn't completely behave according to the same rules. They have a different political ideological system. They're eating our lunch. Um, I don't have to tell you guys in Silicon Valley about any of that. Um, Overdone, no doubt, but, you know, they're, they're, you know, Kai-Fu Lee's book a couple of years ago, you know, et cetera, all that story. So, they're, they're going to emerge into a quite a different world. Um, definitely. Undoubtedly an AI superpower. I mean, and, and a world, I think, and this would be my final point, that, you know, putting all the, the um, you know, vindictive stuff or the, to one side, you know, we've got these two big 
hegemon size economies and societies india is going to get there in 20 or 30 years but for the moment us and china they better figure out a way uh, to live with each other and and run the global economy because there's a lot at stake yeah there is but you know it's it's also interesting to watch china going after the reserve currency status of the us through crypto and through some of the belt and road initiatives so there're going to be some hardening of systems very very quickly someone asked here right you know is this decoupling with china is that real or just political posturing what do you think i think it's it's you know decoupling has been talked about for a long time um but i think there is a certain amount of decoupling going on and i think again it has to do with that wake up kind of call that you know so some repatriation reshoring nearshoring um you know i think there's the big geopolitical shift and you know i've talked about this for a while ray is that the world has changed with the rise of china and the us is no longer i would say willing and able to play the role that everybody loved most people loved it playing in the past this benign hegemon opens its markets to everybody is the world's policeman you know underwrites global security that game has changed pax americana has ended and so um china and the us are still very are going to be interdependent but you know it's that world is gone and so how much decoupling you get is actually endogenous to use an economist <laughs> an economist that is depends on what china and us and to a certain extent the rest of the world because you know they've got a voice here what approach they take to this kind of reconciliation but some amount of decoupling uh seems to be almost unavoidable the straw that oh, broke the camel's so back much. is tiktok it's TikTok. <laughs> I hope not. Paul, no, we're, here live with, My we're here live. We're live with Paul Sheard, Preach Fellow, the Masavar Rahmani Center for Business and Government at the Harvard Kennedy School. And you can follow his company's Twitter or organization's Twitter handle at the Kennedy underscore school for more stuff. So hope you stick around for the green room. Thanks Thank a lot for being on the show, Paul. Great Always pleasure. insightful. It's like having your newsletters come up to life. So thanks oh, a lot. Brilliant. Thank you. Thank you. Brilliant. Thank you, sir. Wow. Ray, wow. <laughs> listen, listen, listen. Just because we have the world's top innovation expert and the world's top economist, that doesn't mean that we don't love you as one of our favorite guests. Our final guest for episode 202 is uh, amazing. The one amazing and only. Amazing, Liz Miller. Don't, don't butter me up, the both of you. I mean it. Like, I just, I don't. I'm so sorry. I, what I gotta say. Liz Miller is vice president and principal analyst at Constellation Research, focusing on business demands on today's chief marketing officer. Oh my goodness, I've had such a great pleasure working, collaborating with so many CMOs during this uh, during this time period. So and so the evolution of customer engagement, the rising requirements, importance of security and scalability and brand affinity, all of that is what Liz has been researching for. Believe it or not, 27 years. So she started when she was eight, right. you know, in elementary Ish, school. Right. <laughs> started to, uh, some of the key trends um, when you read Liz's, uh, Liz's analysis in terms of what CMOs are facing, again, ranging from engagement to trust economy and how marketing has become enterprise security's greatest threat and critical uh, champion. Uh, she's an amazing follow also on Twitter. It seems like we only bring amazing Twitter follows on our show at Liz K. Miller, M-I-L-L-E-R. Welcome back, Liz. Thanks. <laughs> Let me tell you, I've, uh, as because I've been in denial that both Alex and Paul were going to be talking before me, I've also been having a side conversation on Twitter 
with uh, David Rabb and uh, Scott Brinker. And uh, we've decided that we're gonna start a new zombie themed game on what is going to be called the Microsoft Xbox TikTok 365. <laughs> it's gonna be Clash of Clans, but only for MarTech. It's gonna be great. Vala, you can be player number like four, Ray can be player number five. It's gonna be awesome. Don't, but don't worry, we're starting that. new business models thanks to Alex, so they can launch in this new economy thanks to Paul. And David, Rab, Scott Brinker, and I are just gonna, we're gonna collect on that. And it's, you I, think, I think it's also gonna be like a Francis Bacon character from like the, one of the last tweets. So I'm just super confused now. But anyway, what's up guys? You can't, you can't go wrong following <laughs> Alex's thinking and guidance. I mean, his books have sold millions of copies. So cool. He's, he's amazing. He's, he's one of the smartest people well, I have. Well, <laughs> well, here's the thing, Liz, right? We all know you for marketing. You're like the CMO Sherpa for CMOs, right? Whisperer, whisperer. Right. I'm like the Sherpa. I'm certainly carrying around <laughs> the baggage, let me tell you. <laughs> CMO Whisperer, Whisperer. But, but one, CMO Whisperer for other CMOs. And one of the awesome things that you're doing is, is basically taking that into the world of a conversation around brand security. Yeah. And so you recently came back from an event where we normally bring no devices to, we normally not try to go to, uh, you know, uh, with anything yeah. electronic, you know, what happened at Black Hat 2020 virtual? Did they get hacked? Did anything yeah. interesting happen? Did people come home with like, you know, strange things, you know, deposited into their electronic devices? Like what's going on? I, you know, it's so funny because it's so true. Like you go to Black Hat and you're like, don't touch anything. Don't eat it. It's kind of like when you were in college <laughs> and you went to that really weird party. Like don't eat anything. Don't touch anything. Don't talk to anyone. Don't like come home normal, with anyone. <laughs> normal rules of engagement at Black Hat. But this year was all virtual, right? And so I got, listen, I got to give big props to the folks over at Informa because they really understood that what everyone was going to miss about Black Hat was actually all that weirdness, right? It was like all the people in the hallways being like, hey guys, I got I got this new code cracker on this device, right? Like it's it's all the funny things that we talk about in other events, but get real weird at Black Hat, right? Like the serendipity moments in the hallway are like two hackers that figured out how to get your Tesla open, right? It's not like, it's not the normal <laughs> conversation, right? So, I remember that, I remember that. Right, yeah. this year, FYI, it wasn't the Tesla that everyone picked on, it was the Mercedes. So anyone with a Mercedes E, class fyi you had about 19 vulnerabilities that included <laughs> auto start and lock on your car wow. that was weird beautiful um, beautiful but listen no black hat listen there were a couple big themes that i think came out of the event and the virtual event i thought went really well they had this really nice combination of like taped content but live q a so you could still have that back and forth and the community brought what the community always brings which is this really kind of funny sense of humor uh to the chats right so uh, it, all of that was still kind of there, not really the same, but then we didn't have to go to Vegas and sit there in like 110 degree heat talking about security with each other, which was kind of awesome. Um, big theme, hey, there's an election happening this year. I didn't know if you guys knew about that. Um, we're going to be voting about what's stuff. Going what, yeah, what's going, going on with that? What's going on with that? You know, there's, there's, there's no, well, I, I wouldn't know. I hope the yeah. mail sorting machine works when I send my mail-in vote. No, right, right. There's, there's going to be an election. I'm, I don't care if there's a tornado. I'm walking to my... Right, like I'm getting that dang vote in. I am voting, yeah. But But that's the theme, right? And I think that was the interesting thing because we heard from a lot of different folks. And I'm talking like massive, big, huge thinkers, like leaders like the chairman of the tour project kind of big thinkers who are literally saying hey guys you want to know what the most secure thing to do to secure the election is going to be it's a little technology called paper 
Woo-hoo! <laughs> right? Like, I, like everyone's sitting there like, wait, wasn't paper, like didn't, isn't paper dead? Like, didn't we kill paper? I don't understand what's going on. Like, it was just funny trying to like watch all these like technologists try to wrap it. No. Right, they're like. That's okay, man. I, I'm, I'm printing my own mail-in ballot. Let's see what right. happens. Woo-hoo! <laughs> that's the reality, right? Because there's so much complexity. And I don't think we think about that when we actually think about kind of the politicized conversation about the election, right? Remove all that stuff. Just getting mail-in ballots into people's hands is a workflow nightmare because it's not one organization, one technology doing it. It's all the states using different technology, having to be federally standardized, right? It is workflow madness being managed by folks that don't necessarily have a single point of authority. So when you start to think about that in business operations terms, a lot of businesses would give up, right? Like a lot of people would be like, this is simply not worth it. But I, but so I think that the interesting issue about the election is that you now have a lot of different groups coming together and trying to solve the big problems. I think the most interesting call to action was get involved, like literally go volunteer to be at polling centers as a security expert so that you can look at things and say, that doesn't look right. That doesn't feel right. I have to go back to the paper to actually audit if this signature is really real. How can we go and raise a flag early enough in the process so that we can actually protect this democracy gem known as our elections, right? So I think that was super interesting. Um, you know, Chris Krebs, who is the head of CISA, gave this really interesting keynote where he basically said, like, listen, as with all cyber crime, what's happening with our election and misinformation is really a balance of supply and demand. Right. And so the FBI looks at the supply side, like all the criminal activity, all of the behavior. CISA looks at the demand and trying to educate so that we have a more educated electorate, which is going to be really, really, really challenging this time around. So, you know, I think that for for the world of security, they're trying to figure out how do we balance both the misinformation side of the criminal activity and the actual threat side. And I think if we look at COVID as an indicator where we saw threat levels increase by a matrix of about 400%, we are going to see record breaking threat levels. We are going to see attacks that use the fear and loathing, all the chaos, all the question around, is this safe? Can I do a mail-in ballot? What's an absentee ballot? Aren't they the same thing? And is my vote really going to count? All of those conversations, you're going to start to see this ramp up of misinformation around all of these topics. Because any bad actor, any nation state actor who's getting involved in this conversation right now wants that fog of war so that the attack matrix can come in under that cover. So this election isn't just going to be like, oh gosh, who's going to be our president? Who's going to be in the Senate? It's really going to be who won the war when it came to misinformation and when it came to cybersecurity. And I think that took up a lot of the conversation at Black Hat. Um, The second thing I'll point out is Black Hat really had more to do about people than it had to do about security or technology. Because there is a real issue that we're facing. And I would say anyone who is within a corporate enterprise today anyone who's within any organization, government, you name it, go and have a conversation with your CISO and ask how their team's doing. Seriously. Um, There is a real big issue when it comes to burnout, fatigue, frustration. Um, You know, people who are moderating 
ugly conversations today. People who are having to spend hours, you know, it's taking up to two to four hours just to decipher if something's a false positive. This is turning into a job where you go into it thinking, this is the coolest thing I'm doing. I'm in InfoSec. And like two years later, you feel like you've aged like 20 years and you're banging your head up against a wall. Because the interesting thing that's happening in security is that there is such an acceleration of how many vendors and how many tools are out there to solve individual pieces of this puzzle. We're overtooled. We have so many tools wow. giving us so much information and so much data and so many alerts that the average sec op, you know, the average operator in the SOC is getting like 200 alerts in a day. That's called like it's impossible to problem solve under that type of avalanche. So I think the two things I took away from Black Hat this year is that, you know, security really needs a champion. Right. They need they need some help. They need some support. A lot how you know it's very similar to what marketing has gone through over the last yeah. 10 years, where we've really had to solve big problems. And security is solving big human related massive problems today. It's not just about uh, let's stop that breach and maybe we can head off something that's a couple million dollars. This is, well, they've taken over our company. Yeah, maybe well, what let's Alex, go to something. Sorry, go ahead. Oh, go ahead, go ahead, Val. Yeah, just maybe what Alex said, reminding us, like, like if it matters to you, give it power, give it influence, support Absolutely. your security teams, not with just the best tools, best retention strategy and best recognitions, uh, you know, just give them power to ensure that you're protected. Um, it's got to be strategic. Absolutely. It's, be strategic. Like it's not um, operational. Don't think of security as a checkbox. Right. It's got to be something that's a strategic value add for your customer. Right. And if we start thinking about it that way, I think all CMOs, it's, it's why I think I probably tweet this once a week, like get up out of your, like get out of your virtual chair, call up your CISO and ask two questions. How can I help? And what do I do that pisses you off? <laughs> right? Like for every marketer, I guarantee you, you've installed a solution that your CISO is like, you, I cannot believe and, you just put I, that I, on the network. You know? and, and you gave really, really, really sage uh, 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 comments, uh, uh, suggestions in terms of it's about the people. I have to tell you, uh, you know, Monday was my five year anniversary at Salesforce. And yeah, thanks. And I went on I went on LinkedIn and Twitter and I said, when you love the people you work with and you love the work you do, it feels like play. And, uh, you know, so I, I can't tell you that I've had tremendous stress to me. This five years has been I just know people appreciate my work. Uh, I, I, I love the people I work with and I love the, what I do. So time flies by and it feels like play. And I can't imagine getting 200 alerts a day. When you know security is a boardroom topic, when you right. know a, a deficiency security could be tarnishing your brand permanently, we know CEOs have been fired because of security breaches. So even if you love the people you work with, even if you love what you do, a, a failure in your part to detect a threat vector or a, a, a vulnerability, right. it's your job. Or so, an accidental so, stroke. Right. Yeah, so or, or you know, some guy calls you and gets uh, insider information talking to you on the phone. Right. The next thing you know, the platform that I love, and I'm not going to name them. That would never happen to your social media channels ever. <laughs> you know, so I mean, as casual conversation with yeah. someone who you think is, you know, can completely be the biggest vulnerability we've seen in years. Uh, again, again. So, so uh, let me just ask a question while I'm ranting. Do you think this war on misinformation? 
will help the CMO tenure or hurt it? Because hurt it. from my understanding, the CMO tenure or all CXOs, yeah. you know, we're talking maybe a three-year average. When we're looking at this hyper-connected knowledge sharing economy, purely distributed digital, with all these threat vectors you talked about, will the CMO, will she be uh, longer than three years or shorter as we go through this, uh, uh, this pandemic? I think it's going to depend on if she's embraced security or not. And, and understands where it sits. And I think that I think that when you understand that a you've been part of the problem, and that by not addressing the problem, you are intentionally not helping accelerate or accentuate growth, you're going to lose your job, right? So so let's let's you're get right. back to the fundamental. Brand that, security is the biggest threat to the CMO tenure. Absolutely. That sounds like a title because of a report. That's, that's a blog. Out. I might have to recap this what? conversation with that blog. No, that, that's very cool. But, Sorry. But let's, let's be very honest about what the CMO's role is right now, because I think we have to recalibrate what people think the CMO does, right? Um, the CMO is not the brand police. We are not the ones that are the coloring in department. Um, we are not the ones that are like, I'm gonna go make it pretty and I'm gonna put a new, like I'm gonna put a new hero banner on the website. That's that's kind of like, it's some of the things that some people do. It's not the CMO's job. The, the job of the chief marketing officer is to identify, accelerate and facilitate growth for the organization. It's to identify those areas, either known or unknown where growth is possible, probable, and achievable, right? And it's those three things. I can't just mm. say like, I wanna grow because the logo's purple now. That's not achievable. That's not possible. That's not Darn, probable. I just thought changing it to purple would have made such a huge difference. Right. Hey, <laughs> so we're, awesome. not, we're not the guardians of the peas anymore. Like, oh, place and profit. Like that's not, that's not it. We are looking Come at- on, the death of Porter. <laughs> right, exactly. Like we are, so the CMO's mandate for growth can be summed up in three R's, right? It's about revenue. It's about reputation, right? And it's about that reliability of delivering that experience, right? It's, it's while customer experience and Nicole France says this all the time. So I'm going to preach this for my colleague. It is a team sport. It is not a marketing game. It is a team sport. But marketing's role really comes into saying, hey, in these engagements that I am setting up, am I reliably delivering this? And that gets back to brand security, right? So if I'm not looking at revenue, if I'm not looking at that reputation, what am I really doing? So Mark, CMOs drive growth, full stop. Why the We're CMO totally is getting fired? You're doing something else. We totally need a brand you, security I'll, I'll and CMO you. panel at CCE here, so. Oh, for sure. Yeah, totally. Um, Alex, Alex got on first. Paul got him to second, and you just hit a grand slam. That's all I have to say. <laughs> We're the live most, here with Liz the Miller. Guess, the most tweetable <laughs> guest. I'm taking all these notes because I'm going to be tweeting uh, your summaries after. So you're so great. Thank you. No, go ahead. Sorry, Ray. <laughs> Not at all. We're here live here with Liz Miller, CMO Whisperer, and more importantly, Constellation VP and Principal Analyst. You can follow her on Twitter at Liz K. Miller. And more importantly, we'll talk about inner brand. We'll talk about the Forbes 500. The next time we catch up with you, just to see what the hot brands are, what's going on. And, you know, Charlie Isaacs leads us with three R's. Hmm. What's the fourth, me? I hope Ray. not. All right. Thank you so much for being on the show. We'll see you in the green room. Oh my God! Uh, uh, okay, uh, I need. I need just, are we? Like, oh, wait, is that an hour? What happened? I need five seconds to catch my breath. 
I feel like I'm in a you know Italian roadster and I just downshift to fifth, sixth, and I've been going at 100 miles the whole hour. Um, the wind in my hair. Uh, sorry, bad analogy. Um, episode 203. I need to talk about next week. It doesn't work with me. I have too much hair product. Too. Yeah, uh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we have Brian Gregg, senior partner at McKinsey, uh, here to talk about latest trends. Ali Cudby, CEO of Your Iconic Brand and uh, accomplished author Ali. And of course, one of my favorite guests, our favorite guests, uh, Larry Dignan, uh, editor-in-chief of ZDNet, where Ray and I publish our posts. So it's going to be another amazing show. Uh, final thoughts on on Alex and Paul and, uh, and, and Liz. Uh, really three deep thinkers. I mean, when you listen to Liz, uh, she's really talking about some really important deep concepts for marketing. I think our problem is like it makes every show harder when we have these guests on because we just have to keep upping the game. <laughs> but hey, everybody, yeah. welcome. Thank you. It's a Friday in the summer. Hope you're enjoying your summer. At least get a chance to like enjoy the weather. Go out. Get, don't stay too hot. Thank you for watching Disrupt TV. If it is Friday, it's Disrupt TV, 11 a.m. Pacific, 2 p.m. Eastern, almost every Friday. And of course, thank you so much for listening and being here with us. Bye, everyone. <laughs>